0: listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs authors thought leaders and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success so get ready to burn your business cards ditch the name tag and discover the new way to network with your host travis chappell Hey everybody, welcome
1: back to the Build Your Network podcast. Today's guest is Riggs Eckleberry. He's the CEO and founder of the innovative water technology company, Origin Clear and disruptor of the trillion dollar big water industry, which has fallen behind the times and is affecting the health of millions. Simply our current billion dollar centralized water systems aren't coping with demand and water quality is getting worse. Too often there's simply no money to fix these problems as water is inflating at three times the core inflation rate. The answer is to treat water like an oil well. Riggs' goal is decentralized investment community that could vote on needed projects anywhere in the world and fund them, allowing the investors who have been left out of water for so long to get their hands wet. He's using innovation and his entrepreneurial spirit to help solve the world's water crisis and getting America's investors involved to help solve the problem. We've got a lot of great questions for you today, but uh, welcome to the show.
2: Eric, it's a great pleasure. Thank you.
1: Yeah, really excited to have you on. And uh, we always like to start these conversations way back at the very beginning. So tell me a little bit about where you came from. Take me back to maybe middle school. Uh, what was on your radar? Because I can't imagine solving the world's water crisis was the dream on the horizon.
2: It's interesting because of course I'm a baby boomer and in the post-war era, my dad, if you ever watched Mad Men, he was John Hamm. I mean, he was mm. that guy. And, you know, top of the world, it was really the the era when if you were an exec with an American company and we and we were raised abroad, so in various countries, we were by far the most affluent people there. And it, I think, made me and my brothers fairly transatlantic, but also homeless in a way. We never really grew up in one single place. So it has its pluses and minuses, but we did have, I think, a good appreciation of the world beyond. Cleveland, Ohio, which is where my dad was supposed to be with Procter and Gamble. Oh, okay. But ended up, you know, being international, which uh, the, the issue really is is that people say, well,
1: you know, who were your schoolmates? Well, I don't have any schoolmates. Hmm.
2: Maybe that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's always hard, right? Because nobody can experience two different lives. So, so the people that grew up traveling the world without a bunch of people around them would say one thing, the people who grew up in a totally different context would say the other, and nobody really knows which side is is the best. But yeah, tell me a little bit about what that exposure to other cultures and other, you know, areas really did for you growing up. Because it travel is one of the best educations I think anyone can get. How did that kind of influence you?
2: Well I grew up at a time when um, you know, Europe was really it was coming out, the, the common market experience, which is just, you know, removal of customs is all it was, mm-hmm. was morphing into this vision of the European Union. I mean, that was really the whole transition. And there was a lot of optimism. Um, one of the interesting things that I noticed as a kid in Belgium was, wait a minute, where are all these German cars? There were German cars everywhere. The people who were the biggest tourists in post-war Europe were the Germans. They were the ones. And I was like, this is interesting. The, 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 the German economy re- rebounded enormously post-war, and they were kind of driving, I think, all of Europe, with France and Belgium being a, a lot more you know, behind the times. Mm -hmm. So we were keenly aware of it's sort of the, you know, almost a um, end of century kind of feeling, right? The fantasy. Now my dad at one point said, Riggs, we're going to have to Americanize you, you know? And he sent me to high school in the States. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, that was, I I landed in in Princeton high school where it was all, you know, 57 Bel Airs being drag raced up and down the street and Fonzie types. I was like, what? is this no and it was a it was a um it was a real culture shock for me but then again you know the world was changing this was 65 66 mm-hmm. right when everything was changing from very you know uh, bobby socks kind of world to this you know the the breakup of of all these societal constraints, right mm-hmm. and the new era of, you know, question everything. And, and is this really good? Is it not? Mm-hmm. And I landed by, by the end of high school, I landed in New York City, a lot of things happening there. I ended up working for several years in a, uh, a nonprofit that formed, I think, a lot of my thinking of, you know, got to do something for the world. You can't just work mm-hmm. for the mortgage, right? And right. Um, you may or may not be effective at it, but you're, you, you, you got to try. Right. Try doing something about the way things are, right?
1: Right, right. What where, where did that spirit come from? Because you know, you grew up, your dad was in business, obviously. Like, where did that kind of philanthropic side originate from? Or was that something that you just kind of found on your own? Well, it's an interesting story because my mom and I
2: were I think spiritually very connected and we were kind of looking for, you know, what what's going on in the world uh and and what are some of the answers and conventional philosophies aren't cutting it, you know. And one day she said, you know, I found it. And there's this philosopher L. Ron Hubbard with Scientology. Mm -hmm. And I jumped in with both feet first. And in fact, here's the amazing part of the story. Before long, I was literally working personally with L. Ron Hubbard in 1970 on the flagship, the ship that he was on. And it was this amazing sort of Camelot experience that went on that, that I think defined a lot of what I've gone through since. Because, you know, Hubbard was a very seminal figure in that he was a transition from the early 20th century, you know, the greatest generation to the technology, post-war technology phase. And he embodied in his own right a war veteran and uh, you know came out of the war legally blind and sort of fixed that you know himself and learned a lot about how to do how to transform oneself physically through spiritual means anyway so that all led to his discoveries that were this phenomenon that is largely misunderstood called dynamics of Scientology and I was there personally with him and to this day I realized certain things happened that are still affecting me today. So that was very important to me. And I was making $10 a week, you know, plus room and board. It was nothing, right? Money was nothing. Who cared? But by, and then in the middle of the seventies, I I took some time off in the movement. I'd become a qualified ship's officer and, and I became a ship's captain on tramp steamers in the Pacific. I had a whole interlude there that... Taught me a lot about what goes on in Southeast Asia and Australia and so forth. Came back to really be interested in how to really change the world. And in the early 80s, I found myself in a technology area. I was trying to see how technology could change things. I'd been with a humanist approach with with Hubbard. And now I wanted to see how the technology could play into that humanist approach and maybe make them work together. And that's been kind
1: of my passion ever since. Well, I mean, this raises a, a million different questions. <laughs> are you still Are you still actively in Scientology? Oh, absolutely. Okay. No okay. Yes. So I, I have to ask because obviously there's a lot of, I mean, news coverage on Scientology and a lot of opinions and perspectives and, and things like that. I mean, you worked with Hubbard directly. I don't want to distract the whole episode, but I've got to ask for someone who had uh, close contact. What was his personality, persona, what was his vibe, I guess, working with him? He was very matter of fact, individual, very,
2: you could just talk to him, right? Just, we sit down and, and let's say I'd be, uh, you know, since I knew languages, I did a lot of interpretation. So, you know, some person would come on board and I would interpret and, and we sit there chattering and, and it could be anything. He had an amazing uh, background because you may know that he grew up early on in China Uh, His dad was an army officer. And so Hubbard was exposed to the entire world of of Buddhism and Hinduism and all those things, and then came back to college in the United States and became an engineer. And it's that melding that led to what he founded, but it also made him a fascinating person to talk to. Hmm. You, You know, you could talk about anything with him and he's like, oh yeah, let's talk about that. And the thing is, is that you never felt that he was being interesting. He was always interested hmm. right and i think that's the most important thing that you can have as a quality in the world is to remain interested right and too often we fall back on you know performing right and that does not lead to good outcomes uh, yeah it works you know but but you don't become a better person you know and so he really taught me to be just naturally interested in other people What they care about, what are you trying to get done? And I've tried to measure up to that. But he was just a really regular guy. Such a regular guy. There was no halo on them. And what he was really trying to do was to harness the technology breakthroughs we had to date in the 20th century to take. Let's say, let's say you have Buddhism as a concept, which is a very close concept to Scientology, right? But Buddhism, take that and try to do some engineering see what works and doesn't work, you know, apply the scientific method to it. And the revolutionary thing he did was say, here's a book, you can do it. And in 1950, remember, there was not a lot, a lot of that going on, right? That was a bolt from the blue, like here, Dianetics, help your buddy, right? And it became a self-help revolution. Today, we take self-help for granted, but back then it was not happening in America. It was a different world. Yeah, it was, it was, it was church, <laughs> basically church on Sunday. Church was of science. Kind of right? was science, to- science and church. You're absolutely right that, you know, there was, there was the, sci- the world of science and the world of church and all the Eastern religions were not really on the horizon in America at the time. It was very unusual to have somebody who knew Zen Buddhism, you know, maybe people in Berkeley, but it didn't become mainstream in America until much, until after the hippie revolution, really. That's when it really started spreading people went to India and they studied with the gurus and so forth. But prior to that, you know, Scientology was it. And so it was way ahead of the culture. There was a culture lag, and Scientology suffered that. Today, you know, I do seminars and with, with people who, who are, you know, for example, have relationship problems and so forth, and they just accept that the Scientology concepts are not unusual to them. Like, oh, yeah, seems perfectly normal, right? You know, Communicate your way out of a problem. Ooh, that makes sense, right? So a lot of these things have become accepted today. Now, there's a lot of noise I know about Scientology, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of that is overhang from earlier suppositions and earlier, frankly, uh, attacks by organized uh, medicine, which may or may not have invested interest. I'm not going to get into that. But the point I'm making is that today, you know, I mean, look, Scientology had an ad on the Super Bowl it's had 15 million views since the Super Bowl, right? I mean, that is a different world. It's no longer fringe. It's really, America, I think has has integrated this philosophy. And I've spent a lot of time since the eighties coming back to my career, uh, integrating that into what I do every day. And it will become news to the people in my weekly briefing to hear how much I was involved because I just don't talk about it much. I don't proselytize, I don't make it a secret, but i like to stay you know to stick to the mission we have which is water but why are we the way are, we are with water yeah. it has to do i think a lot with this integration of spiritual and technology yeah
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's a big part of you. And that's why I ask. like I said, I don't want to, it's kind of both sides. Like you don't want to distract, but it's also a big driving force. You know, I grew up very religious, you know, for many, many years. And that drove many of the decisions that I made in business relationships. It's a, it's an inseparable thing. And, you know, and I'm always fascinated because like you said, there's a lot of noise and, and negative press and it's, it's it, when you just, out with it. I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. I'm curious to hear from another perspective on it. it." I mean, before we go into that, I mean, just the last question on that. Like, I mean, what do you think? Because there is largely a lot of negative press, you know, uh, that comes out quite a bit. I mean, what do you think is the reason for that? Because when I talk to, I've interviewed two or three Scientologists, and their mission and goal themselves seems to be you know, we want to do this big project like with you, which we're about to get into massive project, trying to improve water around the world, which is a pretty noble mission. There seems to be a disconnect there between negative press versus motivations of people who are members, you know, and I feel that I grew up within a religion that had a lot of issues, but I had a lot of pure motivations. Like, where do you think that comes from or those, those lines are?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and Hubbard once said that uh, running Scientology is kind of like trying to pour a pitcher of water made of water, meaning that you're trying to enlighten people and you yourself are not enlightened. Hmm. This is the core challenge of any religion, truthfully, right? Is how do we rise above ourselves in order to make the other people rise above themselves? It, it's It's a catch-22, isn't it? And so Scientology presents a challenge that... I, th- I believe all spiritual endeavors represent, which is how can I be virtuous enough to bring about virtue in others despite the fact that I'm not virtuous. You know, we we all struggle with that. It's, it's a normal thing. Now, people have a natural tendency if they don't make the grade, they tend to blame another agency, shall we say, right? So we have people who might have done a good job of looking at themselves and they decided not to look at themselves. And so you have small cohorts of people who are very loud about Scientology that are really just, they have not really, you know, um, I have a friend who who's, an, who's who was a big AA graduate and he tells me a lot about how it's a lot about, you know, taking responsibility for yourself. And as long as you are blaming something else, you will never make it. You will never make it. So. I look at these people, some of whom I knew back in the day, and I go, you oh, know, dude, I mean, come on, really? You, you're going to let something, some other agency be the cause of your life? No, be yourself. Recognize you you yourself have feet of clay. If you want to do it with uh, Sufi, do it with Sufi, go for it. But don't go blame other things, right? It's a very addictive personality. The addict Community would recognize that to be someone who's still addicted, who still has not recognized that they that they are not themselves yet, and they are they maybe relied on something. So, what I do know is that vast numbers of people have gotten benefit from Scientology, have moved on. Scientology itself is very neutral. It's a um, you know what Harvard said is what's true is what's true for you and he demanded that we never, never, never accept what he said as truth. And I believe Scientology is the opposite of a cult, right? So when people have the need for a cult, they might find Scientology not to their liking. And then they might say, well, it's a cult. I don't know. It's it's an odd, I I could spend a lot of time looking at why people end up that way. And I had a good conversation with a prominent Mormon and he, we were discussing the same problem. The Mormons had this problem too of people who were disaffected with, with uh, you know, the Church of Latter Day Saints. And why is that? Why does it happen? And I think you just have to say, look, it's human nature. That is going to be the certain people who even went a long way inside an organization, and they're disaffected. And we can go into why, but it's. I think it comes with the territory, frankly.
1: Yeah. Like you said, I could talk about this all day. I'm fascinated by these conversations and um, always interested hearing perspectives like this and and discussing. But I want to make sure we definitely talk about your mission. And yeah, like like I said, this is a this is a fascinating topic. Looking at improving the world that we're in, you know, you know whatever drives that, you know, there's there's people who are trying to tackle this. You're tackling something that. It's not only a, you know, local issue or national issue, it's a global issue. Water is something that is our most precious resource, really, when you get down to it. What got you interested in this mission in particular? And uh, how do you get started (laughs) tackling something like this? Because it's so, I mean, it's so essential that we don't think of it. You know, it's like, it's just, we turn on the faucet, there's water. We go to the store, there's water. We don't tend to think about where it comes from or, you know, what to do with it. It is taken
2: for granted and and I in fact didn't plan on being in water. You know, I I went, you know, fast fast forward to when I was in the dot-com era in the 90s, mm-hmm. and I it was a transformative experience for me. I l- fell in love with the speed and transformation of the dot-com era. To me, it was oh my gosh, the day that I realized, because in the 80s I was in computing for the purpose of uh, general ledger, accounting, order entry, running warehouses and stuff like that. And then the nineties, it became computing for communication. How how different was that? Mm-hmm. And I got super excited about that and and all the early e commerce things that were happening and so forth. And so I learned to operate at the speed of disruption. In the early two thousands, I helped take a software company public on the Nasdaq. And then at that point, I was like, okay, I I feel I'm ready to be a CEO. And a fund that I was close to said, well. Riggs, yeah, we think you could be a CEO, but it's not going to be tech. We've decided to go into green. Remember green, early 2000s? We decided to go into green, and we think algae is going to be the next biofuel. Mm. And I went, okay. Sure, sure. <laughs> I knew nothing about it. <laughs> right. Fortunately, I have a brother who, who had done some work, literally, in that area, and had a technology for helping the algae to grow. Okay. We, we, we launched a company into as a public company with the help of of this fund that was tackling algae as a biofuel. And we were making great progress until the price of oil crashed. Um, Mm -hmm. And it had been artificially maintained at $120 a barrel for a long, long time, artificially maintained in order to encourage renewables like us. But the oil industry figured out that they could vastly increase production through this thing called fracking. And I guess the 50,000 scientists at Exxon had something in mind and they, you know, this guy Mitchell and a bunch of other people invented this technology, which transformed energy and all of a sudden made algae into a science experiment as far as biofuels go. Now, ironically, today, it could be algae's time again because of what's going on, right? But at the time, we're like, you know what? We can't make algae work at $35 a barrel or even 50 It's not going to work. What do we do? And uh, failure was not an option. So we took this technology that uh, my brother had come up with of pulling the algae out of the water, which is actually a big challenge, dewatering algae.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I said, you know what? We can use it to clean water, get the suspended solids out of the water. And that was the genesis. So we literally pivoted into the water industry. And the funny thing is, you know, Eric, I was I was a media darling in the algae. You know, I I, I was considered a really interesting topic. And I was on Fox business and I was interviewed on Bloomberg and debated Jim Rogers. And, you know, I was called algae man, you know, all these things, all of a sudden I'm in water and I like disappeared. Well, nobody cared because water, as you say, is taken for granted. And so then we started trying to figure out, well, how do we move the needle on water? Because one of the early things I learned is that 80% of all the sewage that's created is never treated at all in the world. Now, this is not true. In America it's the opposite. I mean, we, we treat most of our sewage. Yeah. But go go to Bangladesh. Yeah, you know, go to go to places in Africa. Uh, raw sewage into the ocean, the rivers, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is that's the nature of 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 water in the world today. Is that we are polluting this goldfish bowl we live in, and so it's a one trillion dollar worldwide industry. That by the math of it should be really a a $5 trillion industry, but it's not. Mm. How do you transform it? Well, something very interesting started happening in the 70s, which was a high point of water infrastructure funding, is that the federal government started spending less and less on water for reasons we won't get into. But basically, they started starving our 150,000 municipal water systems of money. Mm-hmm. And inevitably this resulted in things like Flint, Michigan and yeah. much much more. The Flint is only the tip of the iceberg. And so we have a failure of the central infrastructure that's been growing for decades now. And the the, the Biden administration came up with the multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Well, it had 55 billion dollars for water. And do you realize that we fall behind every year by 75 billion dollars in needed infrastructure? No. So the big, the big infrastructure bill took care of less than one year of backlog. Yeah. Better than nothing. But the truth is, is that we're not going to fix the infrastructure of America, A, because of lack of funding, B, because pop- places are all built up where you're going to put the water treatment plants, C, it takes time mm-hmm. to build a big central system. And so the natural thing is, uh, you know, I like to say that California is not going to get a bullet train. It's just going to get a self-driving car. Why? Because we have freeways. So mm-hmm. it's going to become decentralized to the most simple thing possible. So early on, uh, by 2015, I was a big, big advocate for decentralization of water treatment. I saw this as a trend. And let me tell you something. I was a prophet in the wilderness. Nobody was listening. Yeah, But yet it has turned into the big trend as, as the infrastructure falls apart. Because one of the great things about decentralization is We've seen this in PCs, used to be mainframes. I'm old enough to have been you know, booking time on a mainframe, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas we went to PCs, took the load away from the mainframes, and now the cloud sits there in background and everybody's happy. Well, we need to do the same thing in water because when you start treating the dirty water at the edge, then the infrastructure requirements are much easier, right? All of a sudden, your central needs are you're, you're treating water that's been halfway treated already, so you're just no. polishing it, really. It, it changes the <laughs> whole dynamic, no. right? So decentralization is essential, and the next problem occurred, and this is one we really had to tackle big time, which is, okay, everybody now wants to treat their own water, but it's not happening. Why? And we arrived at the first week of February 2020 and saw the inklings of the crash that occurred that week when all prices crashed because Wuhan had been out of business for a month we are, oh, what's going on here? And we realized we had to solve this problem right away because we fund the company from the public markets. So right. the public markets started going crazy. We were like, oh And we went into a very intense period where like, what is going on? What is the solution? How do we fix this? And we came up with the realization that it's the money, stupid. Mm. If you're a brewery and now you you're, you're expanding your operations and all of a sudden... Local city says, Well, we don't have capacity, we can't take you anymore. You're gonna to have to build your own water treatment system. Mm-hmm. Well, you're funded to make beer and not to treat water. Right. So it's a capital issue. And so we realized if we fix the capital problem, decentralization is a done deal. And then the second thing we realized is that America's investors would love to invest in water systems mm-hmm. like an oil well. They haven't been able to because it's always been the city, you know, has been bonds, right. you know, municipal bonds, all that stuff. Now direct investment. And people are like, sounds good to me. And now this is this thing we call water on demand.
3: This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors Yeah. Well, I
1: mean, that's probably the biggest roadblock for you is that it is, you know, it's almost funny reading in a bio, like, cause you think about big tobacco and big alcohol and all, whatever, all these different things we throw. And then you read like the big water industry. It's almost like, it's almost funny, you know, reading like that, but are you getting a ton of pushback from organizations that already have this cornered a little bit? Like, has that been the biggest roadblock to making this something that, you know, is decentralized? No, there's a lot of excitement about it. And here's why.
2: Hmm. In energy, all the big energy utilities are fighting solar because it's revenue to them. Yeah, right. In the water industry, it's different. They're dealing with lots of rate problems. The municipalities are being mandated to reduce toxins and do this and do that. And, and there's... Uh, COVID has caused all this rural growth. So you have these tiny municipal systems all of a sudden being overburdened by, Mm -hmm. you know, yuppies showing up and working out of their home office in the middle of nowhere. And there's all this disruption happening. They don't have the budget. Water rates are exploding. And that's hard on populations. So they can't do it a lot. And so they're like, okay, great. You're going to treat your own water and give us treated water. Great. That's fantastic. Uh, Let us know how it goes. Right. And so there's a lot of acceptance of that. Now, in the water industry, I'm talking to companies that are like, hey, great, you're raising money from investors. I got a project for you. Today, I spoke to a, a, a friend of mine who we worked with in the early frack days, in fact, and mm-hmm. called him up and he said, Riggs, I was still on his feed dial. And you know, more than 10 years later, we're in touch again. And he says, I've got a golf course in San Diego and they need... What we call uh, black water recirc, which means taking care of the sewage without having to go to a sewage. In other words, being off completely offline. And they are stuck for money. You want to do it? I'm like, yes, right. So there's pent up demand for funding these projects. And um, we don't do. We're we're not going to make you lease it or finance it. No, just pay for usage, Mm -hmm. right? The same way. uh, You know, I took a picture this morning of I was getting an espresso. And the guy at the counter said, I said, how much does this thing cost? Because I'm in market for an espresso machine. He goes, we don't pay for that machine. We pay by usage. And the thing is maintained and the coffee shows up. And if it's broken, it goes away. He's a happy camper because he didn't have to maintain the thing, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Now, is he paying more for that cup of coffee? Yes. But he doesn't have to worry about all these issues about breakdowns and so forth. So anything as a service is the Mm -hmm. new, new thing. Yeah. That's just how it is. And so people are delighted to go, that, that brewery, we have a competitor called Cambrian Innovations, great company. They they're, um, do a lot of work in Northern California with breweries. And they come along when these breweries are literally don't know what to do next. They're trucking their wastewater to another county, right? Mm-hmm. And they go, here, sign here. You got your machine. It's all good. Pay us by the gallon. And the mm-hmm. brewery goes, okay, fine. <laughs> they sign. It's so simple, Right.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Now, Cambrian is funded by VC funding, which is great. Mm -hmm. But what we've chosen is to open it up to the world's investors, similar to master limited partnerships in oil and gas, where you and I, we can invest in an oil well and get dividends. Mm -hmm. Well, why not do it with water? And so what we're doing is we're doing a much broader and essentially Mm -hmm. building this this water on demand thing is inherently open, a, a democratic approach. And here's the interesting thing, Eric, every single asset has been grabbed by the elites. We hear about, you know, Bill Gates owning all the farmland and so forth and so on. In fact, Jeff Bezos has more land than Bill Gates does, but that's a fun fact. But, and you know, price of gold just took off and oil and gas took off, everything took off. Water hasn't taken off and we don't want to have one Jeff Bezos. We want to break Jeff Bezos into 10,000 investors. And it's still, still lots of money, right? Mm-hmm. It's good. So yeah. we want uh, middle-class investors to benefit from helping water, right? Isn't that cool?
1: Yeah. Well, it leads to my question, which is, I mean, obviously there's a benefit there for businesses or organizations using it. For those wanting to invest, I mean, what are you looking for in an investor? What you know, income range are you wanting for someone to be able to put into this? Because- you know, sitting here, much of what you said went over my head. I'm sure I'd have to listen a few times to to put it all together. but for someone sitting there that goes, you know this makes sense, I would like to find out more, get a piece of this, but I don't even know like is this a hundred thousand dollar investment? is this you know half a million like what am I putting into this? How can people find out more about that? What's the step someone should take if they're interested in what you're doing? Well, that was a great setup question. <laughs> there you go, Yeah, slow pitch down the middle so you can knock it right out. But. <laughs> right, it's very
2: simple. Just go to originclear.com. there is a big red, uh, green invest button in the top right. But right now, we, occasionally we have these offerings for unaccredited investors, but right now it's accredited investors. Mm-hmm. What's that? It means make $200,000 a year or as a joint um, investor, $300,000. Now it can be a spouse or a cohabitant. But that's mm-hmm. the rule, or have a million dollars in net worth, excluding your primary home. Those are the requirements. If you're non-US, it's not the same. It's much much easier. Basically, if you represent you're accredited and you come from non-US, then we accept it. But if you're US, we have to verify that you are. Nominally, it's a hundred thousand dollar investment, but we we're, we're happy to take smaller amounts because what we find is that people tend to reinvest. They like the experience. They like those dividend checks. They're like, oh, this is cool. And so we're not worried about, you know, okay, you've proven you could invest 100000 but if you only want to start with 20, perfectly fine, not a problem. Yeah. Now, if you're not accredited, then we are a public company, ticker symbol OCLN. It's a cheap stock. It's a penny stock. Feel free. It won't bankrupt you. Just uh, jump into your little trading app and pick up some shares. And, and what that does is you know uh, public companies you know people think of stock price as being key it's not it's how much it's traded right the the amount of trading volume is the key to how much of a currency you have uh, as a public company and the more people are invested the more i don't even look at the stock price i'm interested in how many people are stockholders right because the more we have the more it's a movement and that's yeah. in my opinion for example tesla Tesla made it because Tesla became a movement. No, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't yeah. just Elon Musk. A lot of people believed in Elon Musk, and that's what made it go.
1: Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's it's when it becomes people that are just passionate, rabid fans of what you're doing. I mean, Apple, like mentioning cults. I mean, Tesla, <laughs> Apple. I mean, the people that that support them support them to the dying end. I mean, it is it is an incredible movement of people behind it. Yeah. Well. I really appreciate you sharing so much of this. Uh, And I know we have just a few minutes left. So I like to take everybody through a quick random round, ask a couple fast paced questions, and uh, let people get to know you just a little bit better before we close out the episode. First and foremost, do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why?
2: By the way, before we go on to this, I, I love how eclectic this has been. It's been completely outside the box, so thank you. Really, really interesting. It's not my usual business podcast, but I love it. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, who you know and what you know. I'm a strong believer, having done the exact opposite in apprenticeship. Hmm. Learn the trade you're going into. I can't tell you how many times I've got. well i can do that <laughs> so, yeah eventually i worked my way through but it's very costly to me to the people that like sounds like a good idea rigs but geez you, you could have figured it out a while ago so you know learn a trade I, I i think that's the number one thing that that one should do now who you know does get you in the door we know that but i think it's vastly more important to become really really conversant with the space you're going to go into and you know like for example let's say you're starting an amazon business really learn how to run that amazon business mm-hmm. you know on all the ins and outs of it and the cost per click and all the da, 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 da. and then it takes off it's fine, right yeah. the importance of who you know I think has dramatically reduced since the advent of technology
1: hmm. Hmm. i I'm kind of curious on that front because there's there's two different angles here like one, it's, it's good to educate yourself and improve where you are lacking knowledge in a certain area, but also in business, you can't learn every role, you know? So what's the balance between uh, working to improve something you're not naturally good at versus hiring someone else to do it for you? Like, do you think there's, should you try to have a basic understanding of every aspect of your company? Should you focus on learning, you know, the things that are aligned with your strengths and then hire out the rest? Uh, What do you recommend there?
2: Well, I think that people who wanna make it fast and with a lot of upside in business should focus on sales, <laughs> right? You can hire engineers, you can hire accounts. It's very hard to hire good salespeople. And I think that if you can master the transactional side of your industry, let's say you go, okay, I'm gonna go into real estate. Well, you can, again, you can hire a property appraiser, right, but can you sell those houses, right? right. If exactly. you can do that, then everything else is fine. So you know, now it takes what, I don't know if you're allowed to say it anymore balls. It takes a certain amount of gut to go out there and do it. But if you can do that, then you, you can, you can bring in your partners and and the technologists and so forth. So willingness to face, to confront, you know, you know, uh, I come back to Ron Hubbard, you know, he had a saying, complexity is proportional to the degree of non-confront or simplicity is proportional to the degree of how much you've confronted something, right? The more you learn about confront something, the simpler it gets. Hmm. So I think it's complicated. It's because you haven't mixed it up with it. You haven't gotten involved with it. And as you get involved, go, well, okay, you know, this is not the end of the world. I can figure this out, you know, okay. You know, I I got stuck with a tax problem the other day. Well, I just, okay, fine. I don't want to know about it, but I have to. And eventually it turned out it wasn't that complicated. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, confront things that seem complicated is the way to do it. And of all business challenges, the one that people have the hardest
1: time with, in my opinion, is getting out there and selling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and selling solves the problems. If you can make enough money, you can hire the person that knows how to do it at the very least. What profession other than your own do you think would be fun to attempt? Well, you know, I, I personally love to teach people how to ski. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Well, I can go. do
2: that all day long. I just, I, lo- I love the dynamics, you know, because skiing is a physical activity, but it's also highly mental
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, and you have to do all kinds of counterintuitive things. When I get somebody, I do it as a, as a hobby. My wife uh, runs a tutoring operation and we take the kids to the mountains and, and I teach the kids, but I love, you know, because people get this joy, like, "Wow, I can do this beautiful thing. I can fly down the mountain, complete safety. How cool is that So that's what I would be if I can mm. I wouldn't make a dime doing it, but that's what I would do.
1: There you go. If you could sit on a park bench with anybody past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why That's a really, really good question. I would say the most interesting person that I can
2: think of would be uh, Saint-Exupéry, the guy who wrote the Little Prince. <laughs> Fascinating, you know. He was a pilot. He was involved in the early days of aviation. The stuff he wrote down was probably one tenth of what he went through, hmm. you know. And he had these amazing stories about, you know, night flight, Vol the night flight, the, you know, uh, these these pilots traveling in the middle of nowhere and sometimes just disappearing and never coming back. In fact, wow. I think this would happen to him. So I could sit with Antoine de Saint Exupery for a long time, and and I would want to know. What is it that you're still trying to figure out? Mm -hmm. Because he was so out there. and But I believe the more out there you go, the more questions you have. And I'm interested in those questions.
1: Yeah, love it. How do you like to learn best? You mentioned reading, but what's your favorite way to consume new information?
2: You know what? These days I have become a telegram addict i must say interesting and okay because you know it's uh, the, the problem we have with with conventional media is that it's so owned by sponsors and so mm-hmm. commercially you know taken over that it's hard to say what's true or not and i can tell you that the stuff on telegram is just as crazy but at least you have a chance to like sort your way through it and figure out who's who and the uh, jeremy the the person who owns command your brand that booked this podcast mm-hmm. has a telegram channel and, uh, you know, uh, I'm on it because yes. he's kind of a cool guy. So I think that the new opinion leaders, new influencers are coming out, uh, out of this interesting era where there were attempts by the mainstream social media to, to quell misinformation. And I think to, it, it created a lot of, I don't want to say whether that was right or not. It's a whole, it's a whole other topic, but it created a lot of alt media. Mm-hmm. And we're in that period now where people are, are sort of figuring out what's what. And I think that we underestimate people's ability to, to see the truth. Mm-hmm. People do figure it out. If you give them enough information, don't try
1: and pre-digest everything for them all the time. Sure. I think that's kind counter, of counterproductive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast episode on that uh, censorship in general. But uh, alas, we uh, have to keep moving through. Give me a glimpse of your morning routine. What does that look like for you?
2: Well, I study again, I study, um, you know, Scientology every day. Hubbard wrote or, 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 or spoke 75 million words. So there's lots to study. So I do a little bit of that. I have an interactive rower. I'm a big, big I, I, if I could row on the water, I could, I would, but it is what it is. So, you know, I, I try and get in my rowing and then I've learned that get ahead of everybody else, start lapping other people, get way ahead of other people. So you're controlling the conversation and email and Zooms and whatever. And that way, because I hate like, oh, here's the next call. Oh my God, here's the next Zoom. Here's the next. And I feel like I'm being overwhelmed. So getting ahead of it is where it's at. And then I do like to end up with a dinner with friends. I've missed that. And we're coming back to it. Thank God we're back into that. You know, small groups, yeah. serving the risotto with a, with friends and isn't that, right that's so needed right
1: yeah absolutely uh what's your go-to pump up song <laughs>
2: well you know there was gosh that that's a really good question anything by the clash i love the clash
1: okay. they they're great <laughs> that, you know I told someone earlier, anybody that doesn't say M&M, because uh, that's always the default <laughs> entrepreneur answer, M&M, M&M, m m anything by m and So anytime anyone says anything else, they get a point. So uh, so congratulations on that. Down at the Grove. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is one thing that you're not very good at? I think that uh, I'm not
2: good necessarily at teaching people. Hmm. I think I'm a good coach for physical things. I, I'm a I am have coached crew, you know, rowing. I've coached skiing, sailing. I'm a, I'm a really good teacher of sailing, so it's physical. But I'm less good with um, theory. And my wife is fantastic at that. She's she's a child whisperer, which she does for a living. And I'm less good at that. I tend to get a little bit ahead of people. I have oh, noticed. So right. Um, but then again. I like doing the physical stuff with people. That's what I love
1: to see them, you know, take control of their body and make it do things. That's kind of cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Last question here, and I'll I'll let you get on your way. What is the number one place for people to connect with you if they wanted to reach out to you, if they wanted to follow your journey on social media, what's the best place to do that?
2: Well, the first thing you should do is they should go to originclear.com and sign up for my newsletter because when they get my newsletter and they hit reply, it does go in my inbox. So hmm. it's not one of those no reply type emails. It I do get the replies, and we tried to. I actually like to hear from people and see what they think and reply to them and so forth. That's number one. Number two is Facebook Origin Clear, Facebook.com/slash Origin Clear is a great place to go, and we you know I try to post personally as much as I can there. You know the truth is is that if you become too removed from your audience. Then they feel it. They know it, mm-hmm. right? You know, we look up to him so much because he's he's personal, right? Says, "I'm not going to let Starlink censor." I'm like,
1: "Yeah, all right, I like that. Go for it, dude." No, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's uh, it makes a big difference, and and I think it speaks volumes when somebody who's dealing with a large company is responding to people and taking the time to hear other perspectives. I think that's, that's huge, but um, yeah, thank you so much for, for coming on today's episode and uh, really interesting conversation. There's a million threads, uh, social media censorship to everything we talked about. I mean, we could go uh, go for hours, I think on all this, but uh, I really appreciate the conversation and and learn quite a bit. So thank you so much. If you ever want to go on to other topics that are not about my company, I'm around happy to be on board. There you go. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, if you're listening to this episode, be sure to head to the links in the show notes, connect with Riggs and uh, check out all the cool things his company is doing. But uh, until then, we'll see you in the next episode. It was a great privilege. Thank you, Eric. Thank you.
0: That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there, and remember to leave every relationship
4: better than you've found it. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.